Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. The premise behind the Captain Class by Sam Walker comes in the form of the tagline that a great leader is not what you think. What he's done in this book is he has spent an inordinate amount of time looking across all sports, all professional sports I should say, and he's looked for characteristics or traits in the leaders of these teams. Not necessarily the star of these teams, not necessarily the captain of these teams. What he wanted to see was, when you look across this vast majority of sports, is there something, is there commonalities across these teams? What made them stand out? What made them suddenly come up out of nowhere, which more often than not they did, they were an average team, average team, average team, suddenly their success takes off for a definite amount of time and then they slink away again. Maybe it comes in waves in some cases. But what he wanted to understand with this book was what was it about these teams? Was it to do with the superstars? Were they the actual leaders? Was it to do with the captains? Were they the leaders? Was it to do with the coaches? Were they the leaders? And he found some very interesting traits across these teams. The first thing he talks about in this book, the captain class, he talks about the rise of these teams in every case coinciding with the arrival of a particular player. And then he talks about the demise of this particular team corresponding with the departure of the same player. This is really interesting when it comes to the captain class and like I said it's by a guy called Sam Walker and in this book he has spent a huge amount of time looking across all these sports like I've said and he came up with 16 teams that from water polo to soccer to uh, volleyball I think is in there as well, rugby, handball, all sorts of teams. And he starts off with a uh, a fairly in-depth description of how he decided on what a team actually was going to be. He came up with rules for what would qualify as a as a top team, as a firstly as a team, what is considered a team, and secondly, what made them stand out, what made them freakish in their abilities or in their dominance of their particular uh, arena. So some of the rules that he came up with were that there had to be more than five members in the team. There had to be opponents, uh, somebody that they had an opportunity to uh, to prove themselves against. They had to have a certain amount of years of dominance and they had to have an opportunity to uh, be in the top competition, whether that was a World Cup for soccer or uh, the Super Bowl for the NFL, whatever it was, they had to have played some sort of major sport and they had to have been competing at the pinnacle of that sport. Now, it's really important that if you were to read this book or if you were to get something from this episode of the podcast, that you understand that this isn't just his favorite 16 teams. He even speaks about that kind of uh, selection bias that he found when he looked at other people's favorite teams, that they always were biased towards teams from their own childhood or from their preferred sports or from their area of the world or whatever it was. 
there was always some sort of selection bias. So what he had to be very cognizant of was to make sure that he filtered out any of that bias that could possibly have been there. And he did an extraordinary job because some of the teams are just the most random teams you can think of. Because it's not just in the modern era. He goes back to, like I think, the 1920s at one stage to talk about a team that dominated back then. He begins the book, though, with a, with a story about the uh, English and Hungarian soccer teams from 1953. And he tells the story how the English were kind of coming into their own after the, after the war. Rationing was starting to end. People were starting to you know, get jobs and, and getting their lives back in order. And the English team were riding high. They were doing very well at the, uh, in, in, on the international stage for playing soccer. And this Hungarian team that were coming over to play them, were uh, the English were essentially rolling their eyes when they saw the Hungarian team because they were much shorter in stature. They, they were physically smaller than the English team. Their jersey numbers were all mixed up and muddled up. So if you don't know about soccer, goalkeeper, there's 11 players in the team. Goalkeeper wears number one, two, three, four, and five. They're generally the, the defenders and then you know it goes on from there. So generally, when it comes to the number that a player wears in soccer, pretty much corresponds to the position they're going to play on the pitch. Not always, but you know, in the general area of where they'll be playing. The Hungarian players had just jumbled numbers, and just was they looked like a, a ragtag team of uh, of of no hopers. But what was really interesting was that within 43 seconds of the the initial whistle of the game actually starting. Hungary were 1-0 up. And by half-time, I believe, they were 3-0 up. And the English team were absolutely stunned. What they didn't understand was that the Hungarian team had a player called Puskas, who was a 5'7 midfielder, no real particular skill, never really learned to head the ball, wasn't particularly good at shooting, could not dribble the ball with his right foot, didn't have a huge amount going for him on paper. But when he led his team, something extraordinary happened. They all played together as a team. Now, the game ended 6-3 to Hungary. They, they were clapped off the pitch. They were given a standing ovation by the English supporters because they were. it got to a point after 90 minutes that they had no choice but to respect the Hungarian players in the way that they played the game. And this is, I guess, the, the start of what Sam Walker talks about in the captain class, that it isn't just about having one superstar. It's about understanding who the real leaders are. And this is what I mean when I say that he came upon some strange traits for what a leader really is. This guy, Puskas, was nothing much to look at, uh, quiet demeanor, struggled with his weight over the years, not particularly tall, and by most accounts, not particularly skillful either. And yet he was considered the linchpin of this team. And what he talks about in this book as well is that a lot of the time when a team rises up to the top or a company begins in a garage and goes on to become a billion dollar company, people want to dismiss this as anomalies or what they actually call a billion dollar company a billion dollar starting if, if, if a company is worth a billion dollars within five years of it incorporating uh, they call it a unicorn or they talk about the black swan right they talk about this idea of something just an anomaly something unusual 
Sam Walker's point is that there must be more to it and that you can't just dismiss something because it's unusual. There's a reason why they're the black swan. There's a reason why they're the unicorn. And he wanted to know what it was. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call out, I'm going to read out actually, I have a list here written out of the 16 teams that uh, Sam Walker has put forward as uh, what he calls tier one teams. These teams who dominated for a certain amount of time. You've got the Collingwood Magpies from 1927 to 1930. They are a uh, Aussie rules uh, football team Australian rules football team the New York Yankees from 1949 to 1953 this hungry team that we mentioned the soccer team from 1950 to 1955 the Montreal Canadiens ice hockey team from 55 to 60 the Boston Celtics a basketball team from 56 to 69 the Brazil soccer team from 58 to 62 the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers American football team from 1974 to 1980 the Soviet Union ice hockey team from 1980 to 1984, the All Blacks, just the uh, New Zealand rugby team from 1986 to 1990, the Cuba Cuban volleyball team from 1991 to 2000, the Australian women's hockey team from 93 to 2000, the USA women's soccer team from 96 to 99, the San Antonio Spurs who are a uh, basketball team from 1997 to 2016 and the uh barcelona team i was i was reading through this list as as uh, as i was reading the book and i was thinking if he doesn't mention the barcelona team with messi and iniesta and all those lads i'll be i'll, I'll be finished with this book but he has them in there barcelona from 2008 to 2013 uh, the french men's handball team from 2008 to 2015 and the all blacks again from 2011 to 2015 one thing i've just remembered about the barcelona team if you have not seen the documentary called i think it's called take the ball pass the ball it's about this barcelona team and, and their, the simplicity of how they they went about doing their their jobs incredible documentary it's called take the ball pass the ball or something something very similar to that which if you ever watched the barcelona team play that is exactly what they do they take the ball they pass the ball they just continuously pass the ball and nobody can get near them anyway so, his question was, Sam Walker's question was, the, these teams, these 16 just incredibly diverse group of teams, what, if anything, did they have in common? He starts off talking about a player called Bill Russell. At the time, he was 23, I think. And there was a, he was a basketball player for the, for the Boston Celtics. And this team was one of those teams that didn't seem to have any superstars. They kind of came out of nowhere and dominated. They won eight NBA titles in a row. And nobody could figure out why. And it's like they would have said previously, they're just an anomaly. It's to do with the, the coaching staff. It's, um, it's, there's they'd loads of different reasons why. But the whole point in this book is that he's looking to get beyond just batting it away as, you know, it's just a, an anomaly, something that happened. He wants to understand why. Why is this team the best? And he talked about this guy called Bill Russell. And if you remember at the beginning of this episode, I said that every team, its dominance seemed to correspond with the arrival of, of a particular player or the becoming of a particular player is even a, probably a better way of, of putting it that this player came into their own and then 
the demise of the team began when the player left. So Bill Russell for the Boston Celtics was that player. And he talks about something that's since known as the Coleman play, uh, which I hadn't heard of. I'm not a massive basketball fan. But the Coleman play is back in the 50s. This has happened in the, the Boston Celtics from the, from the 1950s. Uh, this guy Coleman on the opposing team had gotten the ball and he was uh, basically on his way to score points and this was towards the end of the game and nobody else on the Boston Celtics did anything except Bill Russell and what Sam Walker did in, in the book is he is he measured the speed at which Bill Russell would have to have gone uh, to get from one end of the court to the other where, where this guy Coleman was shooting. Uh, he was basically just having a layup and was going to just take two points and uh, without any opposition. He reckons that Bill Russell ran or would have run at the speed he went. He would have done 100 metres in just over 10 seconds, which is not far off the, the world record at the moment for a 100 metre sprint. But what Bill Russell did is he made it the length of the court as Coleman was um, jumping for his shot, smacked the ball out of his hand, slammed it against the backboard. And this became known as one of the greatest plays in basketball because not just his athletic ability to do it, but it's to do with his pure desire to do it. Nobody, Anybody could do it. Anybody could have physically probably done it. But it was his desire to get that job done, to not let that guy score those points against his team. And Bill Russell wasn't interested in accolades. He wasn't interested in um, being an egomaniac. He was there to win for the sake of winning. And he became the linchpin for that team. And chapter one finishes with some takeaways. In fact, all of the chapters finish with some really interesting takeaways. And the takeaway from chapter one is that a lot of the time when we think of your, your favorite sports team or your, the, the superstars in the company where you work, you assume the person who talks the loudest, who is the most popular, you assume that person is a leader. You assume that person, we assume leaders should be easy to spot in a crowd. We always think that they should possess some particular traits or some particular skills. And these are universal. And his point at the end of chapter one is that this is wrong. That the, the leaders, the, the real true engines of these teams, both professionally in, in I mean professionally in sport and professionally in, in a company setting, in a, in a job setting, it's, it's probably not what you think it is. These people, they're generally unassuming. They're not great at giving interviews. They might not even necessarily have a particularly good skill set. In the case of these these sports people, they didn't necessarily have a, a decent left foot. If it came to a footballer, they couldn't score baskets in a basketball game. They couldn't tackle somebody in the NFL. Whatever it was, they were not able to always do the things that the superstars did. But they were able to do something else. And his point is that the GOAT, if you've ever heard that phrase, the GOAT stands for the greatest of all time. The GOAT, the superstar in these teams, was not the reason for their success. In any of these teams, or I should say, not that they aren't the reason for the success, but the, he says two out of the 16 teams had the GOAT as the captain. So statistically, you're better off with the leader in the shadows. For example, Carlos Puyol. 
if you're a fan of the Barcelona team back from 2008 to 2013, Carlos Puyol was just a central defender. He was on a team with Iniesta, Ronaldinho, Messi, uh, Thierry Henry. There was so many big players on that team, so many global superstars that Puyol was... Who's Puyol? Never heard of him. But the rest of the players knew who he was. He was the... He was the guy who was able to put an arm around somebody when it was necessary or was able to scream at somebody or able to make that tackle to get the ball off the line. He was the one who was the engine of this team, who everyone looked to in these times of desperation. And that's what we're talking about here when it comes to what a captain is or what a, or what a leader really is. It isn't just about being a superstar. It isn't about having all the best ideas. It isn't about being um, any of these things. It's about understanding that the, the real leader of a team is probably hidden in the shadows. They're probably doing the, the, the grunt work that nobody else really wants to do. They're doing the things, they're doing the right things when, when other people are not watching. They're doing it because they're competitive, not against other people, but they're competitive against themselves. They're doing it because they have to do it. They're, they're driven to do it. Another takeaway talk that I'm kind of jumping over a little bit all over the place here, but and chapter four, the takeaways from chapter four, is that a lot of the time we're, we're, we're raised as children into adults to believe that we should respect authority. The people in authority know best, whether it's your doctor or your teacher or back in the day it would have been priests. We're supposed to respect authority. And that transfers to sport where people assume that the coach is the authority. So the success must be down to the coach. But that's wrong. In most cases, the coaches are an important part. They're an important element of the team. For example, off the top of my head, I think of uh, Bill Belichick in the, uh, the, the New England Patriots. If you followed the NFL, even if you don't, you've probably heard of Tom Brady, right? Bill Belichick is the, the coach for the New England Patriots. And of course he's important. Of course he's the engine off the pitch. But when the game starts, he can't make the players do it. And this is what Sam Walker talks about in the captain class. That somebody like Bill Belichick, somebody like uh, Alex Ferguson, or somebody in a business, a CEO, they need a proxy. They need somebody on the pitch who's on the front lines, who can, who can put their will into practice. Who can take the ideas and actually be their proxy on the pitch. Somebody who can actually do the things that they can't do themselves. They need somebody to do their bidding. He says as well that there's seven traits of elite captains. And I'll talk about each one just very quickly here. He says that extreme doggedness and focus is a trait of an excellent captain or, or one of these quiet leaders, if you'd like to call them that. Extreme doggedness. Again, you think about somebody like Carlos Puyol. Now, I'm well aware that there's people listening to this who don't know who Puyol is. People listening to this who couldn't give a shit about sport. I get it. But what you have to understand about... Let me use Puyol as an example, right? He was the Barcelona captain back in 2008. A central defender. Um, not fast. Disgraceful haircut. Uh, he was, he was just was, but you can understand that doggedness. And really, what I want you to use this episode of the podcast for is to understand that you're when you're looking for leaders, 
It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who is loud and brash and the superstar of the team. It could be the person who says nothing in the meeting. It could be a person who uh, is a jack of all trades and a master of none. What you're looking for in a leader is somebody with that extreme doggedness and focus who will not give up on something. We've all met those people where a problem comes up or a meeting is just about to end and somebody throws a spanner in the works, they go, oh, wait, actually, what happens if X, Y, and Z occurs? And they go, oh, just we'll figure that out the next meeting. There'll always be somebody who wants to figure that out there and then, who has that doggedness and that focus and that ability to come up with a solution and not just kick it down the road. Another trait, he says, is that elite captains are these quiet leaders. Now, quiet leaders is, is my own phrase for this, but I, I think it's, a, it's, it's an interesting way to think about these people that he talks about in this book. These uh, elite captains, they play aggressively to test the rules. They're not, these, these people are not necessarily going to uh, break rules, but they will push the boundaries of these rules to see how far they can actually get. They're willing to play the game, but they want to know, you say the rule is here, but well, how far can I really push it? He says that the these elite captains, they also do thankless jobs. He talks later on in the book about them being water carriers. That another uh, famous footballer called Didier Deschamps, who uh, was the French captain for the uh, soccer team. Again, five foot seven, not particularly skillful, but controlled the middle of the pitch, was able to pass the ball to Zinedine Zidane, who was the superstar at the time, to let things happen. He's, and this guy, Deschamps, he was happy to do that. He was happy to do those thankless jobs, to pick up the ball and pass it. So think about your own team that you either work in in your job or the team that you lead. Who's the person that does those thankless jobs without complaining? The one who does that grunt work and understands that. There's a great quote, actually, in this book. And it's actually from, as far as I know, it's from Deschamps. Uh, he says that you can't, you can't just have architects. You need bricklayers as well. And it's so true of every team. You can't you can't have a team of superstars. You can't have a team of egomaniacs. You have to have the right balance. You have to have the right balance between having architects, the dreamers, the big picture thinkers, and the people who actually lay the bricks. The people who give that two-yard pass. The people who will answer those 20 emails because nobody else will. They're the kind of things that you that you need to look for when you're trying to identify a leader. You need low-key communication style this is another trait of an elite captain according to sam walker in the captain class you need low-key communication style you look for somebody who isn't shouting and roaring the whole time but who's able to he has a chapter dedicated to this actually he calls it boxing ears and wiping noses you need to have somebody who's able to put their arm around somebody when necessary and gives them a kick up the arse when necessary as well but they have a low-key communication style They'll do it on the sly. They'll do it when nobody's watching. They're not doing it. They're not playing to the gallery. They're speaking directly to this individual person. Another thing he talks about as well in the book is that this communication style has to be... Um, they ha- it, it, what they do is they, they dole out their communications to everyone on the team uh, equally. Everybody gets an opportunity to speak. Everybody gets an opportunity to... 
uh, to get their point across. And everybody's everybody's opinion, everybody's take on a particular situation is considered. So nobody is dismissed. The next trait of an elite captain is that they motivate with non-verbal communication. Like Puyol. Again, and the reason I talk about Puyol is because I always thought this back in the day, back in 2008 when I was watching him playing. I always thought he's the guy who's, who's really, he really is a captain. That guy, he's quiet and he goes about his business and he doesn't shout more people, but he, he would put those tackles in when other people might not necessarily be willing to put those tackles in. And what that does is it motivates the rest of the team. Just thought of a random thing there from the, the TV show Silicon Valley. I don't know if you've ever watched that. I think people in Silicon Valley consider it to be a documentary rather than a sitcom or a comedy show. Uh, if you haven't seen it, there's four guys. Uh, it's it's a comedy, basically. It ran for about five or six seasons. And these four guys come up with this great idea for a business. They're in Silicon Valley, and it's all about them trying to get funding for this business and get the business up and running. But there's one particular part towards maybe towards the, the the end of the fifth season i think where as always what happens with this uh this product that they're building it's always in trouble they're always running out of money and everybody's always about to give up and the ceo richard hendricks is, is the character's name he doesn't he shows his leadership skills not by uh shouting and roaring at people he there's a whiteboard with all these uh, sprints that need to be done and short tasks uh, on post-it notes and he says rather than getting everybody else to just you know begging other people to do it he just starts he just takes the first one off the board goes into his office completes that marks his complete takes the next one takes the next one takes the next one keeps going all night long and then other people start to realize that he is leading by example and that's really what, what I think Sam Walker's talking about here. Now, obviously, in the show, it's a lot funnier than that, <laughs> but uh, that I'm, I'm making out. But Sam Walker's making this point in the captain class that you have to motivate with nonverbal communication. That's what you're looking for in a, in a strong leader. It's the person who does those thankless jobs and motivates people, not by shouting and roaring and, and pointing to how great they are and how much work they're doing, it's the people who just get on with it, who just do the thing that needs to be done. The next thing he says then, the sixth one, is that they have strong convictions. They might be quiet, they might be happy to do the thankless jobs, but they're no wilting flower. They are no, they are no pushover. You're, you're, you're probably not going to be able to push them off their perch of what they believe. And again, this ties in with this idea of aggressively playing against the rules or having this doggedness and this focus and actually in fact it links in with the last trait according to sam walker of a of a great leader ironclad emotional control they're in control of their emotions they don't get happy too much they don't get sad too much they're in control of their emotions another great takeaway from chapter seven is that the easiest way to lead is to serve and it ties in with that idea of doing the thankless jobs or what the author calls carrying the water right being the water boy carrying doing those things that just need to be done being the bricklayer rather than trying to be the architect so when you think about the team that you either lead or the team that you are working on or the business that you run 
Think about how you are identifying the leaders. I've seen it time and time again where the number one salesperson gets promoted to sales manager. And what happens? Sales go through the floor because that person, he's not a manager. He's a salesperson. And now the best salesperson is no longer selling. He's looking at Excel sheets. You have to think about who you're promoting and why. The traits of a great leader, that once, you, once you understand what to look for in a leader, you can spot them. But if you just assume that they are universal truths, like they're the loudest or they're the most popular or the most uh, successful at you know answering customer queries or selling or whatever the thing is that your team does, it might not necessarily be true. Great leaders, they don't lead with great speeches. They lead without fanfare. They lead without shouting and roaring about how great they are. I'll finish with this quote from the baseball player who was considered the, uh, the leader on his team, Yogi Berra. There were times when his teammates were starting to essentially lose their shit on the mound where they were, they were not able to get, get it together. And he'd walk up to them, he'd uh, stop play, he'd walk up to them on the mound, right, to where they throw the baseball from. And he'd say something like, okay, Slick, the movie starts at six. It's four o'clock now, and I want to be on time. Let's get this thing over with. If you've listened to any of my podcasts before, then you've heard me talk about things called framing, where somebody reframes the situation for you. And it's a very, very powerful tool to be able to do, to understand the frame through which you're seeing a situation. And what Yogi Berra was able to do in this situation, he'd only reframe this whole situation for the person. So they'd understand it's just a game. It's just a game. Let's get it over with. Let's go to the movies. Until next time. Thanks very much for tuning in and talk to you soon. Hey, before you go, just a quick message about usebecause.com and what we're all about. We believe that true learning happens when you understand, remember, and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. So with that in mind, you can get access to our purpose-built learning tools to help you do just that. To really embed the knowledge from this episode, take a look at the interactive summary that goes along with it. And then use the action log to set a time and a date to go out into the big bad world and deliberately practice the key takeaways from this episode. You do all that and you get yourself a certificate of completion. So try all our tools for all of our episodes free for a month. You can cancel any time. For all of this and all of the podcast episodes, head over to usebecause.com. Until next time.